Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Describe a little bit, Scott, your, because it, just the sheer color of your, of your uh, preaching and, and journey is interesting. <laughs> oh, I grew up Free Will Baptist and even preached in a Free Will Baptist church for uh, so many years and had just uh, oh, met a level of frustration and in my thought process, ended up at Central down in Moberly while you were teaching there. And even while I was going there, attended a Presbyterian church, had talked to the Mennonite Church USA about preaching with them, and from there had moved and served for a short time as a worship director at a Methodist church. Uh, From there, I preached at a Disciples of Christ church for three years, and have landed with Christian church and Christian churches uh, as a, a good fit. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Scott, was that I know that Eugene Peterson, who's uh, recently passed away, was a, a big influence uh, on you, and you had shared his uh, autobiography with me. Uh, tell us a little bit then about, so talk a little bit about Eugene Peterson. Sure. I think I encountered Eugene Peterson back in 2007 or so. Uh, his translation, the message, was getting a resurgence. I didn't get as deep into the message as other people just really loved it, and there was nothing wrong with it. There are people out there that hate it, and I don't even know about wading into that debate. I have an appreciation for anyone that's going to bring a a fresh voice and an honest voice to Scripture. The first book that I read by him that that really took hold of me was a long obedience in the same direction. In growing up Baptist, and I I don't mean to put every Baptist in the same category, and and to be quite honest, this branches out to a lot of Christianity. We make so much of our emotional state with salvation, and, and so much preaching that I felt put on me was to keep people excited and enthusiastic all the time, and you gotta keep them fired up. And and there are a lot of those Uh, a lot of that language that gets used. Peterson, with other voices, seemed to be just approaching this in an honest and not emotional way. His his commentary or his book on Revelation is a, a fantastic one called Reverse Thunder, and his approach is just simply as walking with God. And then in reading his biography, his memoir this year, you just get this sense, even as he grew up, as a pastor, this sense of sometimes pastors take on their churches as a project. And I think there's a real problem with turning your church and turning the people you serve into a project. I think it's important for pastors to have projects that aren't their church, and it kind of keeps you away from that dangerous habit. And Peterson talks about the good times as they're meeting in his basement and the catacombs and as they're building a building, and then they get in their building and and people stop showing up. And he talks about that as this dark time of figuring out how to be a pastor. And I think anyone that serves anywhere long enough knows that frustration. And you will tend to create a project and try to get everyone fired up about it to maintain momentum instead of seeing yourself as living in community 
and walking in the steps of the great shepherd. And his sense of, but his sense of serving, oh, here's the quote. I learned the immense freedom that comes in pastoral relationships that are structured by prayer and ritual and let everything happen more or less spontaneously. And I really think there is something to that approach. And I think that book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, approaching the Psalms of Ascent and seeing life as our days are few and full of trouble. That comes from the Psalms. And understanding that we're walking this, God gave us each other to walk together in Christ. And I just, all of Peterson's work seem to engage that with honesty and without the the frills of needing to be excited about it all the time. Which brings us to Paul's picture of preaching in Corinthians. Whatever it is that he's doing when he's preaching, you know, he describes coming to Corinth and that he is preaching Christ and him crucified. He's not using the three categories that he talks about. He's not a dialectician, a rhetorician. He's not a debater, uh, would be the big category, that he's not you know, using, as uh, Anthony Thistleton talks about it, uh, wheedling, browbeating, music, uh, smoke. He's not uh, in any way attempting to manipulate people. That that seems to be, in other words, a lot of what seems to be happening would fit, first of all, under, uh, and I'm saying in many churches and in the, the minds of many preachers, that their obligation seems to be to fill in in one of these categories. They want to be uh, a rhetorician. They want to be a dialectician, or they want to be scribe-like, lawyer-like, in in a sense, presenting a, a kind of legalistic, uh, which I would, I would connect more with the browbeating. Nor do they want to be, you know, Paul's saying, I'm not a philosopher. The word that he's using there is Sophia. He's not uh, in any way, leaning upon or appealing to the wisdom of this age, but he's describing throughout then the preaching of the cross as standing over and against those three uses of language, which pretty much just seems to cover language as we have it, that here is, and, and in terms of preaching, Boy, that seems to hit it. You're either you're either into style, you're into legalism, or you're into some sort of uh, proclamation of human wisdom. Yeah. And so maybe does that fit then what you're describing about Peter? Yeah, and I think it goes with the idea that the church isn't just preaching a gospel. If the church is the body of Christ, which is a major theme in First Corinthians, then the church is a presentation of the gospel in itself, in its community. That it is a witness. Yes. Run that down for us a little bit. Oh, I, the problem is I can't cite any of my sources. They've become so muddled anymore. But you just have this idea that uh, so oftentimes I think we disassociate the message that the church preaches from the church itself instead of realizing that the church is the message. When we invite people to Christ, we invite them to ourselves. And I mean, you can work the other direction with that, that Jesus Christ is the very definition of who we are. So if we're behaving in any way that's 
counter to Christ, well, then it needs to stop. Um, I think that's where this letter crescendos in 1 Corinthians 13 in talking about love being this greatest thing that we need to seek after. When you line up faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. The the preaching of the cross, and uh, we we discussed this a little bit, that the preaching of the cross is inclusive of what he's going to say about love. It's almost there in the first few chapters. It is then an undoing of wisdom, rhetoric, law, which in some way seems to be a kind of uh, an appearance of things. In other words, it doesn't get to the heart of things. And when Paul is getting to the heart of things, it is then in love. It is, and what he means by love, of course, he spells it out there. He spells out what it isn't. But in uh, in another sense, he's saying, well, the, the unity that you have, the holiness that you have, and not all of these spiritual, in other words, they're confusing, they're in a kind of competition, they're in a, a seeing who can have you know the most gifts. And so here is this very worldly church, and what it seems to mean to be a worldly church is then to in some way take in the, the divisions, the mindset, the wisdom, the philosophy, and just the simple jealousies. I mean, he talks a lot about the, the uh, jealousy yeah. and competition. And so when you say the, the picture of love, maybe that just uh, comes clear back to the preaching of the cross. Absolutely. And I think that's where you get this sense of love being our highest goal as a, as a body, as a church. And I think that's why communion is going to be so harped on in Paul's message. Uh, The one thing that we do every Sunday to put everything else in perspective is being done poorly and doing a disservice. And it is declarifying what is happening in our midst when we're brought together in unity in Christ. And he, I'm sure, is just red when he's writing that portion. He's just furious. So this this brings us to the meaning of Christ. And he's saying you need to recognize the body of Christ. That maybe our doctrine here plays into this, our understanding of what this is all about. He's going, in fact, he, it, Paul will argue, you know, it's similar to his argument uh, about baptism, that you've been baptized and he almost starts the letter that way, that you are a holy people, you are a called out, you're the ecclesia, you've been given the the gift of God's grace. Yeah. And the rest of the letter is saying, okay, now be that. Realize who you are. And it's almost like, it. T- tell me what your perspective is then on the significance of the Lord's Supper. Oh, I think the idea of seeing the body represented is, I think you could say, a little bit more in tune with Mennonite voices of around this table with the the bread and with the cup, seeing that that Jesus is manifest in what pairs perfectly in the first, in First Corinthians as the different parts of the body of Christ. Paul nowhere says uh, the church is like the body of Christ, or you are like the body of Christ, but but you are the body of Christ. To then roll together 
chapter 13 about love to pick up on the theme in chapter one about preaching the word of the cross. I think what we see around the table is in Christ crucified, love is revealed in sacrificial service. And it is then what you just said, a a reminder that to receive God's love and to share God's love isn't just to pat people on the back and say, we love you. It isn't good enough for people to hear us say we love them. They must know we love them. And that's done indeed as in word. That's done with sacrificial service. That's done by carrying each other's burdens. That's done by feeding and clothing people. That's done by serving our neighbor. That We don't have to wait for these things to show up on our front doorstep. We need to go and seek those that need the love of God. And uh, you know, as you're describing that, La Plata for a little bitty town in Missouri is kind of unusual. And, and just a little bit, describe what you all are doing there in terms of carrying that out. Sure. I think the number one thing I would always bring up, and it's just really fun to be a part of, is La Plata sits right on the border of Adair County to the north of us and Macon County to the south of us. And uh, back in the 80s during the farm crisis, uh, there were three families that got together to make sure people were fed. And they would load up, I think, cattle trailers and bring food back from Columbia and set it all out in someone's front yard and people would come and get what they needed. And then it became more formalized and and into a ministry that the churches oversee. And we have a a building and we have a monthly distribution. For me, participation in a ministry that feeds the hungry is not optional to a church. This is of the utmost of necessity that we all find our ways to serve. And for some that may be dropping off canned goods, even though most of our food is provided, there are ways that the churches need to help out in town and do help out in town. Mm-hmm. And for others, it's going to be volunteering between Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And and for others, it's going to be working at the front desk. And for some people, that's going to be carrying frozen chicken. There are so many different things that encompass that ministry. No one gets paid at that ministry. The director gives tons of hours making sure that thing runs like a top because he has a vision to take care of the needs of those here in town. And that vision stems from understanding Christ crucified, understanding the love of God, understanding what it means to be the body of Christ. And so I think that's one of, and I think it's being remedied. It's just so slow to remedy. The message in evangelical circles for the longest time was, well, we take care of people's temporal needs so that we can feed their eternal needs. That ministries are a means to an end rather than understanding that sacrificial serving is the heartbeat of the church. This is how the gospel gets out. This is how the gospel is revealed. It's not a two-step process. And I think people, I, I hear it preached more in line with that instead of just, well, we send doctors around the world to create an opportunity to share Christ, which is great. But the idea is Christ compels us to go and heal and feed and serve. I think that's the very definition of what I hope we're doing here in La Plata. I mean, what you're describing 
you're doing life together in La Plata. And I would guess, in your own journey would make me suspicious of as much, that there must have been a kind of shared understanding, or has this been uh, something that you've developed since you've gotten it? Oh, yeah, I would not say that this is something that I've engineered. I would, um, as I watch more in my life, there are certain things that God calls us into, and that's the best way I can say it. And I know in some circles that sounds trite or pretty empty anymore, and I understand. But there are certain callings through valleys as well as uh, being here in La Plata. It's just been a good fit. At falling into it may be just a great way to say it. Um, but as I explain to people here, it's just a great fit. We, it seems, enjoy each other's. I enjoy being here. We enjoy each other's presence, uh, company, and uh, we challenge each other, which a challenge does come in ministry or any time we walk together, but it's just the right context for it. And so it's been great. I just love, love being here. In that context, let me ask you then, like you come to a passage in Corinthians, and obviously part of what's happening in the New Testament in Corinthians, Paul's preaching of the cross is a particular understanding of what the atonement is, what salvation is, an embodied salvation. That if Romans is the great theological treatise of the New Testament, then Corinthians is the great pastoral treatise. But to get to an understanding of doing life together, it seems like you almost have to move people from one understanding of what the meaning of the cross is, a kind of penal substitution, divine satisfaction. Now, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe you want to disagree with me. But it, it seems that there are that the obstacles that are put in our way of doing life together are theological obstacles that Paul is knocking down in his picture of what it means to be united in Christ. I'm I'm wondering how you negotiate that. I think that's an excellent point. I know I don't have all the answers on this one. I think it's something my mind wanders to a whole lot. I mean, essentially in a church, like any group of people, but it's just such a hot button in a church, you have to say, well, where's the line for people to be in and out? Or where's the, the sub-party in the church is going to be? left and to the right, or however we come up with these designations. Um, in chapter 1, we see divisions in the church. Later on down the line, I'm going to kind of paraphrase. Paul has a line in there, and you'll find in Thistleton, he's not precisely sure what to do with that line, where he says something to the effect of, but it's necessary to have some divisions, which allows certain people in the church to justify any division that they would like to justify. And it's hard to know whether Paul is being sarcastic. Um, and I'm sure people with a finer sense of things will dispute this or that. But in the details of all of it, um, we do have to deal with divisions. What's going to say, well, that's within the realm of orthodoxy and we can get along even though we disagree on these things. Or when we get to chapter 15 and Paul says, how on earth can you not believe in the resurrection? Jesus Christ hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins. We're the 
most to be pitied. Uh, division comes down to Paul's mission. I've We're about to get in the book of Acts. I'm um, in 15 and we'll be in 16 soon. And we'll be dealing with Paul and Barnabas going out on the second trip. And Paul uh, in a rant and what just seems to be a knockdown drag out with Barnabas refuses to take John Mark. As uncomfortable as it makes us, there are these little divisions and it shouldn't just be there to feed our ego to say, well, that's right. And I'm on the right side and you're on the wrong side. I think in the grand scheme of things, there is an orthodoxy that we have to find and agree to in a church. And for every church, that may be a little different, even though I would disagree with that church. When it comes down to it, there are things out of bounds, and we see that within Paul, and we see that within the New Testament. He, he seems to lay this out or nuance it in a very interesting way, because in chapter 3, he's going to describe building on the foundation of Christ with wood, hay, and stubble. That it's possible to be a part of the church in Corinth and to be doing or apparently building a life that is totally useless, or not totally, but nearly so. That, well, you will will be redeemed, but only through a purifying fire. N.T. Wright says something, uh, you may survive the fire, but with singed eyebrows. I don't believe in purgatory, but that almost <laughs> sounds like a purgatorial or a purifying process. I don't know quite where that occurs. Right. But what it seems to be describing is people who have just, and that's what Paul is saying, well, you've got the basics, but almost like an infant is able to survive on milk, you've got enough information here, or you've got, a, you're, you're a part of the foundation, but and it seems like then what he's describing elsewhere, you know, in the beginning, he's saying, okay, now here are these three categories, or, or here is a foundation that is not Christ. You know, you can build on the human foundation, human wisdom. And it seems like you're trying to do both. But as, I, as you think about this, here in, in this country, in a church that and I never quite know what to do, with the evangelicalism, and I know that's such a broad term, even Christian churches historically would not have identified as evangelical, right. but it's it's now a kind of moot point because they've been absorbed theologically and culturally into evangelicalism. But if evangelicalism is then in a Trump presidency, and I don't mean to, to get political here, I'm just saying this is a sign of the direction that this, this religion or this Christianity has gone, this branch of the church, if you will, that it, it seems to have proven itself certainly ethically suspect, uh, morally, you know, we just the, the across the board, this group is proving itself morally suspect. And so it it is quite a fit, to my mind, to what Paul is describing and what you're saying. That is, these it's not a question of your salvation. It's just a question 
are you actually gold, silver, or or wood, hay, or stubble? Are you doing anything of any value to build upon the gospel Paul is saying that I preach to you? And he's saying, it seems like he's saying to these people that 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 it's suspect in your case because of you've been co-opted uh, to such an extent by the culture of course. Yeah, I, I think... I understand that, and I understand, I mean, I love Corinthians, and it's probably my favorite letter from Paul because of how messy it is and how unvarnished his writing is. The fact of the matter is, as big of a mess as they are, some of them deny the resurrection. They're divided all over the place. Certain commentators, and Witherington kind of gives you a map of a, of a Roman and a Greek-style house, that they may even be doing communion in separate rooms. And you have all of this mess. And let's go to the nth degree. In chapter 6, some people are going to the prostitute shrine. And it could be because they're not having sex with their wives, or who knows what the situation is. And he draws that out specifically. He points that out. And... The fact of the matter is, I don't have anyone here at my church going to the prostitute shrine, so I think we're sitting a little bit better than where Paul was. Paul doesn't write any of them off, at least not in this letter. He's always calling them back. Even if in, uh, in chapter 6, or in uh, chapter 5, with the uh, man that's living with his father's wife, he talks about expelling someone. It is still for repentance and restoration. The idea is we're not writing anyone off. And so I I love that picture of uh, the precious metals being refined through the fire. But I think the fact of the matter is we can't offer a critique so harsh as to just dismiss people and that what we're trying to do is bring people along, which I think it's so exhausting. It's so much easier to categorize people and write them off and send them on their way or to use the right kind of argument that's going to tick them off and dismiss them rather than engaging in a loving way. As Corinthians, as Paul writes in Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And as you're describing this, you have negotiated this better than anyone I know. That uh, theologically, you, you are not part of what uh, typical evangelicalism amounts to, and yet you seem to to have, uh, in some way, been able to bring people along, and in and especially there that you've been there and and you found a comfort level and a level of agreement. Uh, I mean, it almost uh, in in that sense, maybe it uh, again, it's Paul and Paul's you know broad. Uh, acceptance, but maybe it's also a picture again of the kind of pastoral model that uh, you have in Eugene Peterson. That there, the the divisiveness is kind of this this idea of uh, drawing lines. Right. I think where the difficulty comes um, when you live in a a situation when you decide that there can be differences, and there is a boundary that's set up, even if the loosest boundary is. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, um, even if it is that belief in the resurrection? From there, 
those boundaries tighten up whenever it comes to leadership, when it comes to a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, when it comes to deacons and elders. Those questions become a little bit more firm to say, well, this is this is what we believe, and this is what we teach, and this is what we preach. And so um, I think there is a sorting out. There are things on the line, but sometimes we just believe in the church that our faith and our description of the faith is so homogenous. Uh, maybe it comes from a mechanistic understanding. I mean, I know some churches see people joining a membership and use the word assimilation. I just think that terminology sets us up for a misunderstanding uh, of what the body of Christ looks like. The body of Christ is not redundant. Spell that out. What do you mean by that? Oh, I just mean like uh, we have this idea that everyone needs to look like me or everyone needs to have my gifts or everyone needs to have this level of enthusiasm or everyone needs to uh, have this my very specific and opinionated theology. And as nice as that would make me feel comfortable, that isn't healthy for me, and that isn't healthy for Christ's church. Uh, the fact of the matter is, our gifting is different. And, and in Paul's picture of the body of Christ, each of us play a part in a very different part with our abilities and uh, with everyone's not going to be a finger because that would be an absolute distortion for what the body of Christ looks like. In other words, this unity is not one that we create, but it's one that is created in the body of Christ through holiness. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that as as you do life together, as you uh, connect with other people in love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of this uh, is not simply theological. It's uh, what in the end, you know, do people split because of theology or do they split, split because of personalities? Yeah. And I'm guessing that it's just as often, if not more often, the personalities involved more than the theology. Sometimes the theology may simply be an excuse. Right, right. And so in, in some way, this commitment to one another that Paul is picturing, for him, there is no possibility of, well, okay, you Apollosites, you know, you meet and you Paulites meet. Uh, in other words, that's, uh, that seems to be they're, they're already breaking up right. into the, the, what would become uh, denominations. Yeah. And he's completely, even for those who, who may be the Paulites, he's saying no, or even the Christite, which is an interesting one. Wouldn't you think that, oh, well, that's the one that we want to join. Yeah. Christ, you know, Christians only. <laughs> yeah, uh, but apparently there is still this sense of, of divisiveness of, of doing identity over and against. And so maybe the point of doing life together, doing church together is is recognizing that the holiness is, and the unity is not one we create, but it's one we participate in. Yeah, yeah. It's already there that you are a holy people. And, and now be that. Now, figure, you know, that's who you are. And so the love practically is the thing, is the guiding principle that will take us into a depth of understanding, uh, you know, that you you have the mind of Christ. Yeah. And so 
about pictures that you do not, and in the word there, you know, you do not judge. No one judges you, yeah. but you judge all things. And the, the, the word is, uh, you know, discern. But in some way that where you would usually pass judgment on other people or each other, he's saying, no, that's that you turn that what I would call the kind of scribal yeah. attitude, the legal legalistic attitude. You don't turn that inwardly, but you begin begin to discern all things then on a different basis through the through the Christocentric, a Christocentric understanding that then is the foundation that you can build upon. And not, and this kind of gets in, I mean, I'm getting, this is, this is a theological understanding, but I think it's a theological understanding grounded in a practical lived reality. That part of the division then that, that comes about because of being co-opted by the culture is then the sense in which the foundation is in some way pictured, the foundation of the world, you know, rhetoric, wisdom, uh, philosophy the categories there, the, the yeah. law, that in some way those become foundational. Right. And what Paul is picturing as a foundation is the person, the mind of Christ. He says there is no other foundation that has been laid. We cannot presume to build on human wisdom, to build on, on a kind of legalistic or, or scribal understanding. Those, in fact, he's saying, that the people who have adapted that understanding, the le the the argon of this age. Ooh, do I wrongly just assume we're reading into that principalities and powers just as well? You know, you called me out on that. I'm just kind of shooting off the hip that way, but I hope I'm in the right neighborhood. You know, this is what Paul's and I's conversations are always like, so... <laughs> sure. I mean, that's what I think. Maybe I was leading you there. But yeah, the, the, it seems to be that he means the same thing by the argon of the age, the, you know, the, the spirit of the age, the rulers of the age. Right. It's a phrase that he uses in different language, the principalities and powers, that in some way, is it political? Yeah, I think it is. Is it spiritual? Yes, I think it is. Amen. It, certainly, his uh, Ephesians, this world. I mean, it's it's very Johannine, but I think it's there throughout the New Testament. Mm. That John pictures the, the 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 cosmos, but for John, there, it's almost like there is uh, twofold. There is the cosmic order created by God, this you know good world, this creation at which the logos of Christ stands at the center. And there is the darkness, the the and but which includes then for Paul the word of man, rhetoric, wisdom, philosophy, law. For him, this is the world constituted by human beings, and they would found a world in this house of language. But Paul's point is no, the, the logos of the cross undoes the logos of man. And so the argon of the age, the principalities and powers, are by definition blinded to the cross of Christ. But they killed him, he says, but they would not have done so had they understood. And so their very position, power, principle by which they operate is yeah. blinding. So that 
to be to the the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are not on a continuum. They do do not fold into one another, at least as Paul pictures it here, but one is opposed to the other. That you do not get to the wisdom of God through the wisdom of the world, which means that that, that has a lot of implications mm. theologically, but it it also then uh, has has implications at a practical and, and uh, personal. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it goes back to reiterate. I think uh, in the wisdom of God expressed through the word of the cross, the fact of the matter is to understand God is to see His sacrificial love that has been worked out among us in Jesus Christ. But then it speaks to the very nature of who we are as a church, isn't to have our argument all put together into such a persuasive, emotional, irresistible message that someone can only say yes, but it's to live like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to sacrificially love uh, those that are in the body of Christ, but just as much those that will never, ever follow Christ. That is God's sacrificial love, his wisdom put on display for the whole world. So the logos of the cross, the word of the cross for you is captured in a kind of uh, Philippians, what is it, two seven, the kenotic giving of Christ that we imitate, that would stand over and against the apparently selfish, critical, oppositional identity through difference that they may be doing. For me, it always comes back around to that pastoral component of yes, it's good that we believe this, but it's also one foot that we put in front of another foot, and the way that we behave like Jesus. And and maybe the part I'm definitely leaving out is certainly 1 Corinthians 15. The only way to carry the cross and to live out the word of the cross in the path of Jesus is with this resurrection. To be dead to the world, to be alive in Christ, and to have the power of death removed gives us the ability, the possibility, the drive to live love out or love or whatever we try to live out without the resurrection becomes exhausting. I think we collapse back into ourselves. But to live out the resurrection, and I think that's a Peterson quote somewhere, that you, without graves you can't have resurrection. Baptism, this belief in Christ crucified and resurrected, to believe in ourselves one day we will die, and in some sense our baptism is death, and coming out of the waters is a reenactment of Jesus' resurrection and a conviction of to die in Christ is to be raised in Christ and our future resurrection. When we can live with Jesus' resurrection in mind and our resurrection in mind, then we can live this way of hope and faith and love. It is entirely possible. Well, and so what you're describing is a kind of uh, correction to a theology that would isolate the cross from the resurrection. Right. Right. Or a or what's worse, a misunderstanding of the resurrection. Run that down for us. What do you mean? Well, I, I, 
Unless I'm misunderstanding it, I was frustrated by the article I read the other day about Eugene Peterson. He has died, and he has entered the resurrection. And I mean, maybe I've got that wrong, but I just assume he's embracing as much of the resurrection as he was alive. There are parts of our rising that we participate in now, but it's only a a taste of the future resurrection. I mean, the fact of the matter is we are all still straining forward to the day when we are raised in Christ with our resurrection bodies. And I don't know. I'm hoping I just misunderstood the guy that wrote the article at Christianity Today or or whoever quoted him, because I thought Eugene Peterson had a very clear understanding of resurrection, of, um, oh, as Wright would put it, a death, uh, life after death, life after temporal time of death. And so that that's that misunderstanding of resurrection must mean when we go to heaven, when we die. That's not what Paul is wrapped up in. He's wrapped up in this new body that we receive when Christ returns and makes all things new. Let's sum it up. If you had to sum up the study of Corinthians, how would you do that for the impact or the importance that uh, in preaching through it? I think the importance of it is it's so incredibly relevant to everyday life and life in America. Uh, we live in this time of, I mean, infinite knowledge or what feels like infinite knowledge about our slightest curiosity. And some of that's fun, to be honest. The kids will ask about some animal and we look it up, or stars, we're out looking at Mars and Saturn and Jupiter. And there are so many neat things to know. But the more we find out, we're so incredibly critical of other people and what they don't know and how they don't study. And that just gets borne out in the church and the way we, I don't, again, there's no problem that we disagree, but the way we treat each other with backbiting and arrogance instead of humility and love. And this letter deals with that problem and divisions, and it deals with uh, the Lord's table, and it deals with deformed sexuality, and it deals with worship, and it deals uh, with love. And it, it all culminates with this vision and challenge of living up into the resurrection. And I think it is a book and a letter that when we study it, it, there's a fresh challenge every time to our situation and to how we live out community and the practical steps of how we love one another as Christ has loved us. I, I think the lived out presence with each other, with the people that are easy to get along with, and with the people that seem constantly disagreeable. I think that's in our our families and in our churches, and you could take this to a civic level. That The greatest gift we give anyone is just living in close proximity. Community is about proximity, and if we ever see a, a change borne out, it's not because we've taken someone on as a project. It's simply because we've lived alongside of someone else. And I think that change is a two-way factor. When you live out along some someone else, you are changed as much as anyone else. That is a beautiful ending to a great conversation. But let me ask you one more thing. That you have adopted uh, two girls. And I feel like that 
that you have an insight, a capacity, and understanding there. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk yeah. about why you've done that. Anna and I had talked even when we were engaged about the possibility one day of adopting and, and waiting for the right time. And and the conversation went on, and it's been 17 years almost in, in talking about that. And in the process of uh, fostering to adopt, when you study uh, on kids that have been through trauma and when you go through foster care training and, and you go through adoption training, you just hear about how uh, kids come in wounded. These aren't, I mean, quite honestly, they have to be clear with some people. These kids aren't pets and they're not your best friends that you're just going to, you're just going to save. It, it really goes to the book of Corinthians that people are healed in community. Wounds are mended in community. And it's not done in the abstract, and it's not done um, just with one simple prayer. It is lived out love. And that is incredibly difficult. It is nothing I could do by myself. I mean, Anna, we balance each other out in the wisdom that comes from our marriage in talking things through and airing frustrations, but it's in bringing people, these two girls, into the community of our family that we see healing happen. And, and I'm amazed even, it's almost been a year, I'm amazed at the short time certain things have happened. I, I believe in, it's for the same reason I believe in this message through the Corinthians and this message to our church family, it's not only, let's be clear, it's not only these two girls that are being healed. There are, my ego is being worked on and my patience and where I think I love people, that is challenged. I just as much need community. This isn't the idea that Ann and I are going to swoop in and, and save people. In this process, I am also saved. Powerful stuff. Scott, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. I don't know why we've waited this long to, to capture this, but I sure appreciate you doing it. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.